Well, good morning, everyone. It is wonderful to see you here today at the Vista. Uh, if we haven't met before, my name is Austin. I get to serve here as one of our lead pastors. If you join us for the first time, first time in a long time, maybe first time at church in a really long time, <clears throat> we're just so glad to have you. And we hope that you feel loved and welcomed and wanted, that you fit right in and make yourself at home here today at the Vista. Uh, before we jump in, one brief thing we wanted to highlight, and that is our Vista volunteer of the month. This month, it is none other than Miss Elizabeth Moore. I believe Elizabeth's actually in the service. I won't make you stand and take a bow, but she is. We've got a celebrity in our midst. Uh, Elizabeth has served in our kids' ministry for a number of years, pre-K small group leader, helps out with VBS, you name it, Elizabeth has done it, and she's just a really, really special and awesome person, an awesome mom. Happy Mother's Day, Elizabeth, and we're just really, really grateful for her. And uh, man, we, we like to highlight people because it's a reminder that a church, in my experience, becomes home for you when you step in and you start serving and you kind of take some responsibility for the household. That's when it really sinks in and it becomes home for you. And so if you'd like to jump in and serve and find a spot, you can either go online or go out to the Next Steps area after service and we'll find a spot that will fit you. So today we are in the second week of our series. It's a brief little series that we're doing before we get to the summer called Past, Present, Future. And it's a series about time and the importance of learning how to relate to time, our time, properly. I know that might sound a little bit existential, like Austin's getting philosophical again, but I promise it's really practical because as we established last week, uh, we're not just creatures who like live in time, but in a very real sense, we're creatures who are made of time, which means that our relationship to time is an essential part of our relationship with God. Now to return to that James Smith quote that we used last week, it's kind of a theme for the series. <clears throat> he says, we ride the cusp of a wave that we call the present, driven by the past and headed for the shore of the future. I love the visual that's given here. There was this philosopher named Martin Heidegger, and he talked about how we all experience life in large part as this experience of kind of being out of control, pushed along by forces beyond our control, being thrown. He literally called it thrownness, okay? This is a philosophical term. Thrownness, isn't that a great philosophical term? And what he meant is we, we're all kind of born in motion and on the move, and that from birth we are pushed along by forces beyond our control. And so before you were even old enough to have a past, you were being pushed along by a past, weren't you? By your parents' past, your grandparents' past, your great-grandparents' past, Adam and Eve's past, so on and so forth. And so, you know, nobody gets to, like, get down in the starting blocks of life while holding the starter's gun and deciding when you would like to begin your life from a neutral starting point, right? Was anybody consulted on where, when, or how you'd like to begin your life? Did I just miss that meeting, you know? No, no but nobody gets that. If you got to choose, be like, well, I'll take some pocket aces, please. Take this 2-7 offsuit back. But that's not how life is. And so rather than choosing our own launch sequence from a neutral starting point, life feels much more like being thrown into existence by somebody else, right? Parents, that's what it is when you have a kid, right? Just like, good luck, man. Just throw them out there, right? That's what life is like. And so we're all trying to sort out our thrownness in the most faithful way possible to return to our surfing analogy. We're all just kind of tossed into life without our consent by being thrown on top of this wave that is the present, driven by the swell of the past and headed for the shore of the future. And so we're all trying to sort out surfing our time. Well, how do we do that? Well, last week we talked about healthy and unhealthy ways of relating to our past. And we said our past is not what we've left behind. Nobody gets to leave their past behind. Our past is what we carry with us. And so now today we're going to talk a little bit about healthy and unhealthy ways of relating to our present. So if you have your Bibles, grab them. We'll be in Luke chapter 4. It'll be up here on the screen for you uh, as well if you did not bring your Bible. 
Cool little story here, verses 14 through 30 out of Luke chapter 4. And Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through all the surrounding district, and he began teaching in their synagogues. He was praised by all. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, his hometown, okay? And as was his custom, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath, and he stood up to read. And the book, the scroll, more accurately, of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him, and he opened it and found the place where it was written, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. He closed the book, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down, and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Yeah. And all the people were speaking well of him, wondering at the gracious words which were falling from his lips. And they were saying, is this not Joseph's son? And he said to them, no doubt you'll quote this proverb to me, physician, heal yourself. Whatever we heard was done at Capernaum, this other area where Jesus had done some miracles, do here in your hometown as well. He said, well, truly, I say to you, no prophet is welcome in his hometown. But I say to you, in truth, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the sky was shut up for three years and six months and when a great famine came over the land. And yet Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. There were many lepers in Israel in the time of Elisha, the prophet, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman, the Syrian. And all the people in the synagogue were filled with rage as they heard these things. And they got up and they drove Jesus out of the city, led him to the brow of the hill on which the city had been built in order to throw him down the cliff. I love this last sentence, but passing through their midst, Jesus went on his way. All right, Luke 4, verses 14 through 30. Um, so a few years back, I had this bucket list experience when I was given a ticket to go to the Masters. If you're not a golf person, the Masters is this, the most revered golf tournament in the world, in the history of the world, and, and tickets for it are basically impossible to get unless you know somebody. But shout out to my neighbors, Brian and Joella Reinhardt, best neighbors in the world who gave me a ticket to the Masters even after my boys peed in their pumpkin. It was their pumpkin that had been peed in previously by my boys. No greater love is there than someone gives tickets to the progeny of someone who kids peed in their pumpkin. And so they give me these tickets. It's an amazing thing. And I get to go. And there are all sorts of unique things about the Masters experience. I mean, it's held at Augusta National, this beautiful golf course that's loaded with golf history. You walk in, there's towering 200-foot-tall pine trees everywhere you go. Uh, you walk in past these concession stands where they are selling the most delicious pimento cheese sandwiches that you have ever had, starting at 8 a.m. for a buck fifty. Beer is like $3. You can eat, gorge yourself the whole day on $20. Meanwhile, I have to take out like a loan to go to Starbucks in the morning now, right? It's like $8 for a, a latte, and then would you like to leave a 800% tip or a 1,000% tip? It's, it's ridiculous. $20 you can eat all day at the Masters. Anyways, it was an amazing experience. Tournament was won by UT alum, and much more importantly, uh, Vista Baby Dedication Prayer, Scotty Shuffler, uh, who I've dubbed an honorary member. And even though the experience is now over a year old, I can still remember everything about it, man. I can remember what I wore. I can remember who we followed, what they wore, what shots they hit, how many pimento cheese sandwiches I ate, the old lady I elbowed out of the way to see Tiger Woods putt. And even though it was one of the most awesome experiences of my life, I actually only walked away with one photo to document my trip to the Masters. All right, here it is. We actually have the picture. Can you see me? This is actually from like ESPN's front page. All right, we'll zoom in a little bit and help you all out. 
There's me looking like Christopher Columbus, right? Land! Where are those $2 sandwiches? Got me in action. Uh, and the reason this is the only photo that I have to document my master's experience is because, and you're gonna need to brace yourselves for this, okay? Phones are not allowed at the master's. And they don't have to shake you down, strip search you or anything like that because everybody just knows that you don't take a phone into the master's because it's blasphemy and the golf gods are watching you and you do not want them against you. And it's actually one of the most unbelievable things I've ever experienced, y'all. A bunch of smart phone addicts voluntarily parting ways with their phones for an entire day. In fact, it's even been speculated, y'all, and this is probably true, that the masters is the largest phone-free gathering of adults in the developed world. Think about it, where else you can have 40,000 adults just voluntarily handing their phones. And it's amazing how difference in experience is when you're just experiencing it instead of trying to capture it with your phone. So for example, here are two photos, Tiger Woods. Top one is Tiger Woods at a typical golf tournament. By my count, there are at least 25 cameras there three feet away from Tiger Woods with these people choosing, instead of watching the greatest golfer of all time a few feet in front of them, to watch him on the really tiny, crappy three-inch screen right in front of their face. Now, at the bottom picture, that's Tiger Woods at the Masters, and as you can see, nobody's watching Tiger on their phones. Everybody's watching the real deal. And, and when you point this out, we all realize how stupid this is. How stupid it is to put a barrier between you and the present. But we also all know that there's something oddly uncomfortable and sometimes downright painful about attending to the present, about being fully present to the present. And so we also all know uh, this temptation to find ways to resist and reject being in the present. And our story today in Luke 4 is a very interesting instance of it. Jesus has just started out his public ministry. There's a lot of local buzz around him. You know, he goes to Nazareth, the town he grew up in. He goes to the synagogue there, which means that Jesus goes to the church that he grew up in, okay? Uh, while there, he's apparently selected to do this thing called the Haftarah, which was this reading that a member of the congregation would do. So you do the reading, you'd offer this really short commentary. It's like a really brief, low-key sermonette. And so Jesus has handed the scroll of the prophet Isaiah. He unrolls that scroll until he finds the part of the text that he's looking for. Isaiah 61, a lot of scrolling. He says, this, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. Now, this text that Jesus has chosen to read is a very important and cherished text because it's a text about the Messiah. And God's promise that the Messiah would come and he would gather up the lost, the forsaken, the indebted, the broken, all the allegedly unsavable people the Messiah would seek and save them. And so Jesus reads this text and he rolls that scroll back up. Again, 61 chapters, right? Scrolling. The eyes of everybody in the synagogue are fixed on Jesus. And what does he say? He says, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Now, can you imagine standing there in that synagogue that day? Now, because your whole life, man, you've been waiting for the Messiah to come. Your whole life, you've been waiting for the Messiah to come. And now here's this kid that you grew up with standing in your synagogue in front of you saying, hey, man, today is the day. 
That day you've been waiting on, today's the day. Today's the day it's all going down. Today is the day that all God's promises are being fulfilled. Uh, And then it seems that Jesus, you know, his proclamation, it's initially received pretty well. Everybody's impressed by his charisma. They're they're proud of the hometown hero. But then Jesus seems to kind of turn a little bit on the crowd. And then the crowd definitely turns on Jesus because the next thing we know, these people that Jesus grew up with, they're trying to throw him off of a cliff, right? I've seen some sermons go wrong. I've had some sermons go wrong, but I've never seen anything like this. We have to read between the lines a little bit, but it sure does seem like things go wrong when the crowd asks itself this question. Did you pick up on it? The crowd asks itself, isn't this Joseph's son? That's when things turn. Uh, Apparently, Jesus perceives something in this question that he does not like, and it prompts him to provoke the crowd by doubling down on his pronouncement that the day of God's call, right, the day that these scriptures are fulfilled, it is today. It is not tomorrow. It's not the day after tomorrow. It's not sometime soon. It is today, and he doesn't think that they are ready for what's going down in Nazareth today, and apparently he's right because next thing you know, the same people who changed this man's diapers are trying to throw him off of a cliff. Now, commenting on this text and the really abrupt turn that we see in the story, Gerhard Lofink suggests that it's an example of the difficulty that people have accepting what he calls the todayness of the gospel. So a little bit of context, here's the whole quote. He says, it's not only in Nazareth that the todayness of the gospel was not accepted, it continues throughout history. Apparently, it makes people uncomfortable to have God appear concretely in their lives. So it puts all their desires and favorite ideas in danger and their ideas about time as well, because it can't be today, because in that case, we'd have to change our lives today. So we prefer to delay God's salvation to some future time, because there it can rest securely packed, hygienic, and harmless. What do you think? I, I, I think he's onto something here. Because basically everybody I know, man, they plan on getting their life together eventually. And I know so many people who they tell me they're going to get serious about their faith soon. But like today, today, I mean, today, let's not be hasty. <laughs> let's, pump, let's pump the brakes a little bit, man. Because if, if today is the day, then that means that obedience is required like today. And today is not good for me. <laughs> I got some stuff going on today it reminds me of that famous prayer from St. Augustine where he said, oh Lord, make me chaste, but not yet. <laughs> Y'all remember this prayer? This is a prayer of college guys. Lord, make me chaste, but not yet. I got to build that testimony first, my man. I mean, how uncomfortable would it have been to be standing there in that synagogue that day and have Jesus Christ standing in front of you? He's like, hey, today's the day. You in or you out? The day you've been waiting, it's, it's, it's here, it's now, it's me. I'm standing in front of you. I'm the Messiah. You in or you out? I think it would have been terrifying. Like, awesome, but, but terrifying. And yet, Scripture actually relentlessly affirms that all of us are, in point of fact, in the exact same place as all those people who were standing in that synagogue in Nazareth on that day 2,000 years ago, because Scripture is very clear that the day of God's call upon our lives, it is always today, and it is never tomorrow. Say that again. The day of God's call on your life, it is always today, and it is never Tomorrow, And so now let's, let's talk a little bit about these three distinct, very closely related ways of resisting and rejecting the present. Namely, wonderlust, distraction, and boredom. Okay? Wonderlust, 
distraction, and boredom. Now, wanderlust is a very fun word, isn't it? Uh, it's one of my favorite words. Uh, it's a bundle of associations kind of connected with it. Most basically, it means the lust for wandering, for, for novelty, for new experiences, for travel. Like we've all got that friend who always wants to go eat at the really cool new Greek restaurant in downtown. You know the friend I'm talking about? Like in my marriage, that's my wife. Anytime we're going to go eat, she's like, let's go somewhere new. I want to try somewhere new. And I'm like, okay. You want to try somewhere new? I got How about we go to the Jalisco's in Belton instead of West Temple. How about, how, about we, how about we spice it up a little bit, yeah? Get queso and guacamole. <laughs> we'll sit in a different booth, baby. Uh, you've all got that friend. you all got that friend who's always planning the European vacation. Always. There's always this European vacation they got going. Who wants to renovate the house every time the weather changes? And uh, there is something good and even healthy about that, like wandering spirit vibe. There can be something really good about it. But it can also get really toxic when it causes you to de facto reject living the life that you actually live so that you can daydream about this life that you don't actually live. And you know what I'm talking about because a lot of us live our lives in this more or less constant state of FOMO when we always feel like the action is somewhere else. I don't know where it is, but it's not here. <laughs> the action is somewhere else. And we always feel like the time is soon, but not yet. Uh, John Maynard Keynes, he has this great quote describing the wonderlust smitten vagabond. Listen to this. He says, well, this person does not love his cat, but his cat's kittens. Nor, in truth, the kittens, but only the kittens' kittens, and the kittens' kittens' kittens, and so on forward forever to the end of catdom. And this perverse form of wonderlust is unhealthy because it's essentially an attempt to escape the God-designed limits of the present in this pursuit of everything, everywhere, all at once. Like, for example, you have all seen at some point in your life, probably your freshman year in high school, the, uh, the old Big Rocks illustration. Remember the Big Rocks illustration about how proper prioritizing can help you fit everything into your life? Right, so the idea is you got all these things you got to fit into your life. You know, so you got the big rocks, you got the pebbles, you got the sand, and if you just put all the little things in first, then the big rocks can't fit. But if you put the big rocks in first, you get those priorities right, you put them in, then voila, the pebbles and the sand and everything else fit in around it, and you can fit everything into your life. And the reason this illustration is like, it's like 10% true, and then 90% nonsense is that we all know that the real problem with life is not just that we're not very good at prioritizing, if only it were that simple. We all know that the real problem with life and fitting everything into it is that there are just way too many big rocks to fit into that tiny, stupid jar that is our lives. And so here's the deal, man. You can run the algorithm as many times as you want. You could try to sequence and place the rocks in any fashion that you want, but you're not going to fit all those rocks into that tiny jar because here's the cold, hard truth about life that somebody should have told you by now, okay? No matter how hard you try, no matter how efficient you get your life, no matter how much you try to squeeze in and or squeeze out of life in your life, you will basically miss out on just about everything. That's my pep talk. It is, and you know it because here's the deal, man. You can only be one place in one time at a time for the very limited time that you get, right? You are, you are so little. You inhabit one square foot of dirt at a time for the very brief time that you get above the dirt. 
And this means that no matter what you do, you will basically miss out on every place that you could have gone, every job that you could have tried, every experience that you could have had, and every person that you could have married, though some people cover a lot more ground than others. Well, that one to be sure. And so instead of pursuing everything, everywhere, all at once, except that you're going to basically miss out on just about everything, so that then you can actually learn to live the life that you actually live instead of daydreaming about life that you do not live. And that brings us to distraction and boredom. T.S. Eliot, a famous poet, he wrote a very perceptive and arresting thing about distraction about 80 years ago. This is for my poetry people. You don't get enough shout outs. This is what he says. He says, neither plenitude nor vacancy, only a flicker of the strained time-ridden face is distracted from distraction, by distraction, filled with fancies and empty of meaning, tumid apathy with no concentration. Men and bits of paper whirled around by the cold wind that blows before and after time, wind in and out of unwholesome lungs, time before, time and after. I know some of you are like, huh? Um, You get the basic idea because even 80 years ago, it was becoming clear that not only were we becoming increasingly distracted, but we were becoming so distracted that it was distracting us from how distracted we were actually becoming. And this is going to sound a little bit harsh, okay, but I think it's indisputably true. Um, Distraction and boredom, they're not just rooted in like a a lack of discipline. Distraction and boredom are rooted in a lack of character, a lack of virtue. Distraction and boredom are moral issues, not discipline issues. There is something in us, man, and you know it because you've experienced too, that resists embracing the present, and it's an unhealthy and unholy something because it's a form of rejecting the life that God has actually given us. Because think about this. If, if, if reality, like if the real life in front of you can't even begin to compete for your attention, and you find this more interesting than reality, there's something wrong with you. And there's something wrong with me when reality <laughs> can't even begin to compete for our attention. Back in our Ecclesiastes series, we spent some time on that really iconic section in Ecclesiastes 3 where we're told that there's a time and season for everything. Remember that one? You know, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to build up and a time to tear down, a time to speak and a time to be silent. And we love that text for all sorts of reasons, but one of the things I think we really love about it is it gives us permission to surrender to life's seasonality instead of fighting it. And then additionally, it encourages us to understand the season of life that we're in. Because understanding our season of life can help us properly calibrate our expectations of life. And few things in our lives cause more frustration and resentment and suffering than carrying around out of season expectations. Like if you walked in this morning and you were just mad, you're pissed off, you were just, everything's going bad for you. It's probably due in large part to the fact that you are walking around with expectations that just aren't proper to the season that you're in. I mean, man, if you're a parent with young kids, like I know a lot of us are, just don't expect a clean house for like a decade, okay? Just don't expect it. 
That's like thinking you're going to strut through an Arctic winter in your Speedo. Okay, it's not going to go well for you. It's not the proper attire for the season. You're just going to be mad all the time. Or this happens all the time. I have couples who will come in. They're in like kind of the second leg of the marriage. They're in their 40s or their 50s, and they're all upset. And I, just, I just don't understand where our passion has gone. I don't understand why we don't relate to each other the way we used to, why we don't pursue each other romantically the way we used to. And I always think to myself, for real, you just don't understand? You just don't understand that? You don't understand why 40-year-olds might relate romantically different than 20-year-olds might? You don't understand why 40-year-olds doesn't want to sit out and, you know, make out in the backseat of dad's Corolla? That doesn't make sense to you? It's very uncomfortable. It makes complete sense to me. And you need to grow up a little bit. This applies to seasons of faith, too. Here's James Smith again. I love this quote. He says, while God is eternal, creatures are seasonal, and thus our relationship to God is characterized by a seasonality that is natural, expected, and good. It's natural to relate to God differently at different points in the journey of our creaturehood through time. When one cultivates some expectation of this, the seasons of ebb and distance need not be alarming, even if they might be difficult and puzzling, because God's nearness looks and feels different depending on the season that you're in. I remember talking to a friend recently who was worried she was like losing her faith. And we were able to talk, it's not that you're losing your faith, it's that your relationship with God evolves over time. Do you have any relationship in your life that stays exactly the same your whole life? Of course not. Right? There are ebbs and flows, and sometimes what we think is losing our faith or whatever, it's just a faith that is maturing. We relate to God differently in different seasons. All this to say, we relate to the present properly by embracing where and when we are. And we embrace where and when we are by tending, attending to the present with stability instead of wanderlust, attention instead of distraction, and curiosity instead of boredom. To circle back to our text for today, we receive the immediacy and the todayness of God's call upon our lives when we can truthfully say that there is no place that we would rather be than here and now. Because in point of fact, um, there is no place that you can actually be except here and now. And so we might as well be here. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Gracious God, thank you for the gift of today. We do not deserve to be here. We are here because a good and gracious God has decided to host us for another day on this blue and green spinning rock, and we are grateful to be here. God, we confess that there are all sorts of ways in which we resist the present. We resist the todayness of your call upon our lives. We prefer to delay our obedience. We prefer to let our minds and our hearts wonder and fantasize about lives we don't actually have that wouldn't actually be any better because we struggle accepting the limits of the lives you have given us. And yet those limits, God, they don't have to be limiting, but rather expanding. They allow us to go deeper in instead of being spread out too thin. And so I pray that today for new friends and old friends who are gathered in this room that we would once again hear what those people standing in that synagogue in Nazareth 2,000 years ago heard, which was today this scripture has been fulfilled in our hearing. Today the Lord is among us in our midst setting prisoners free. 
breaking chains, seeking and saving the lost. And we need not delay our obedience because the day of your call upon us is always today. It's never tomorrow. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.